Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, I'll be talking to Raoul Beatty in New Delhi about the overnight airstrikes conducted by the Indian Air Force on a militant training camp inside Pakistan, a development that has caused a significant escalation in tensions between these two nuclear-armed neighbours. But first, this week, it's Brexit. And today, Tuesday, British Prime Minister Theresa May announced a major shift in her position and in doing so has possibly opened the way to a delay in Britain's exit from the European Union due at the end of March. For more on this, I'm joined by Dennis Staunton, our London editor. Dennis, uh, tell us about this new position that Theresa May outlined in the House of Commons today. Theresa May said uh, in the Commons today that uh, by the 12th of March, she would bring forward uh, a revised version of uh, her withdrawal agreement, or at least uh, the withdrawal agreement with some assurances about the Northern Ireland backstop, and put that to what's called a meaningful vote by MPs. They vote yes or no to that. If that is rejected, then uh, by the 13th of March, she would uh, ask MPs to vote on whether or not they would like to leave the European Union without a deal on March the 29th. And if they say no to that, then on the 14th of March, they would be allowed to vote uh, to ask uh, her to seek an extension of the Article 50 negotiating deadline. In other words, to postpone Brexit for, as she put it, for a short period. She didn't specify just how long that would be. Now, until now, she has ruled out any delay in Brexit. So what has prompted this change in her position? What prompted it is that a number of of ministers in her government have said publicly, and even more of them have said privately, that if she wasn't, that if she didn't move uh, to rule out a no-deal Brexit on the 29th of March, that they would support an amendment which is being put before MPs tomorrow on Wednesday. Uh, It's proposed by Yvette Cooper, former uh, Labour minister, and by uh, Oliver Letwin, who's a former Conservative minister. And what that would do would be that it would take control of the agenda of the House of Commons for a day, and then they, so that the Commons would pass a, would be able to pass a bill which would oblige the Prime Minister to seek an extension of the negotiating period. Now she was worried that that if that happened, that basically that the government would lose control of the Brexit agenda, and she said that there were big constitutional problems with this, and so to avoid that happening she decided that she uh, had better uh, just give in to this demand, but that instead of doing it the way the uh, Yvette Cooper amendment would do it, that uh, she would do it her way. But she did promise MPs that she would follow whatever they said, so that if they, if MPs voted to extend Article 50, then she would ask the EU to extend Article 50. So what she's hoping is that by uh, making this concession now, that uh, uh, enough Conservatives will change their minds and decide that they're not going to... Uh, support this amendment tomorrow. And is it clear, Dennis, that this amendment, the cooper Letwin one, will still go ahead tomorrow? Will that, will that vote still take place? Or has she kind of successfully neutralised its impact now? Well, I think that uh, what's clear is that some of the prominent supporters of the uh, the Cooper amendment are now having cold feet or second thoughts. And they seem to be suggesting that they may now not support it. It looks like Yvette Cooper is going to, uh, to still table the amendment. And then, of course, it's up to the Speaker whether he calls it or not. But he probably will, given that he did uh, once before. It looked quite likely that it would pass. Now it looks much less likely because uh, many Conservatives will feel as if they're going to be able to get uh, find a way of avoiding a kind of a cliff-edge, no-deal Brexit on March 29th, even if that is just postponing it for a few months. 
And how has this moved today by, by Theresa May gone down with the various factions in her party? Well, the, the Remainer faction uh, have been reassured by it because they were particularly concerned about the impact of on business of a no-deal Brexit. The Brexiteers have, uh, for the moment, kept their powder fairly dry insofar as their official line so far today. Now, they will be meeting later. Uh, the European Research Group will have a meeting of their members later on this evening. But what they have been saying until now uh, has been that this doesn't necessarily make any difference. You know, even if she does extend for a short period, like, say, for two or three months, that's still, uh, you know, it's not going to stop them necessarily voting against her deal if they don't like whatever she brings back from Brussels. And also it means that uh, the no-deal Brexit can still happen it just happens a few months later than March 29th. And do you think, Dennis, has she done enough for the moment, at least, to stave off the threat of resignations from members of her, of her government? Yes, I think she has done that. Uh, so I, I don't think you will be seeing anybody resigning because they really, you know, in, in almost every case, I think uh, all they wanted was for her to uh, rule out no deal uh, on March 29th, which she kind of has. Now, when I say kind of, uh, one of the interesting things is that speaking to uh, her spokesman afterwards, uh, he uh, said that uh, she hadn't decided yet whether the government was going to whip in favour of any of these amendments. So in other words, was the government going to tell its people to support a no-deal Brexit or to support an extension to the Article 50 negotiating deadline? It's very unlikely, I think, that she would uh, whip Conservative MPs to support a no-deal Brexit. But you know, it's not quite clear. And so those opposition MPs who were questioning what she was saying in the House of Commons today, one of their issues was that you know, given that she has delayed lots of votes in the past, there's no real way of knowing that she really will uh, fulfill her promise on this. Whereas at least with the uh, Cooper Amendment, you've got something firm and watertight. You've got something that's really legally binding. And so they're taking something of a risk in terms of trusting her to do it. But it looks like enough Conservatives are going to be prepared to trust her uh, to do it. And now it's a question really of seeing whether she can actually get the changes that she wants to the backstop that will persuade enough MPs to vote for the deal so we can avoid all of this. And I mean, am I correct even leaving aside the question of, of, of applying the whip, we're not yet cleared on, on where the government would stand on these motions after the 12th of March if she fails to get her revised deal through and then we're voting on a no deal and possibly a delay. We don't even know what her position will be, do we? No, we don't. And apparently she didn't say at Cabinet what it was going to be because somebody asked her and she apparently didn't, uh, you know, wasn't willing to say. So I think I'm part of that, of course, is that she wants to give the impression to her Brexiteers that she is adamantly against an extension of Article 50. She said in the House of Commons today she doesn't want to postpone uh, the departure date. And uh, and the government does believe that even if uh, they don't get a deal through Parliament until the 12th of March, they still could get the enabling legislation through in time to leave on March 29th you know, at a push. That's not quite certain. But they think that you, know, you, you could actually avoid an extension if necessary. There is another question, though, where, which comes up, which is how long should the extension be? And she said that she'd like it to be as short as possible. And uh, there are uh, European Parliament elections towards the end of May and the new MEPs take their seats at the beginning of July. So the uh, the kind of cutoff point for a pretty straightforward extension would be about three months towards you know, to the, the end of June. That would mean Britain wouldn't have to take part in the European elections. But it seems that the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, intimated during the cabinet meeting today that actually you'd need about nine months. 
And uh, some on the EU side think that actually a short extension just postpones the cliff edge for a few weeks, whereas actually uh, for the political situation in at Westminster to resolve itself, you possibly need a bit more time. So an extension to the end of the year or even for longer might be a better idea. And it's possible that even if Theresa May said she just just like an extension for a couple of months, that somebody could put down an amendment, say, on the 14th of March to uh, insist that she does ask for a nine-month extension. And then when she does ask for an extension, that, of course, is a negotiation with the European Union because all 27 other heads of state and government have to approve any extension to the negotiating period. And I was just, I was coming to that question, I suppose, Dennis, is, is it taken as read that the EU would, or the EU 27 would facilitate a request for an extension or or might they seek to impose conditions or negotiate on the time frame, as you say? The assumption is that they will uh, agree to it just because, uh, you know, if it's a question, if it looked like it was a question, you just need a little bit more time to get a deal and to avoid all of the cost and the damage of a no-deal Brexit, which obviously is going to damage not just Britain, but uh, the European Union as well, then they would be inclined to say, yes, okay. But they haven't really had a proper conversation about it. I was speaking to uh, somebody in Brussels just before I started speaking to you. And apparently this is something which they just, you know, they're going to have to start talking about quite soon, but they haven't. But you've had some soundings uh, privately from some governments who are saying, well, you must attach conditions, not just about how long it ought to be, but also what exactly... Britain is going to do during that time so that it's not just, uh, you know, uh, carrying on the same sort of, you know, uh, uh, game of chicken for another few weeks that actually you would, uh, you know, the UK would have to set out what exactly it wants this for, what it plans to do with the extra time and then how the negotiations would go from there on. So I think you probably will find some conditions attached to it. But I would say that if Britain asks for an extension, it will it will be given to it. Now, Theresa May is not the only one to have shifted position in the last 24 hours. Jeremy Corbyn finally relented and agreed that if the Labour Party couldn't get its own Brexit plan through the House of Commons, which we, you know, we probably, we know it won't really, that it would then support a, a, a second public vote. Um, he had resisted this for, for quite some time. What brought this change about? Well, I think what brought it about was that eight of his MPs left the Labour Party and joined this new independent group. And uh, partly because he was dragging his feet over Brexit and over the, a second referendum. And that uh, there was a threat that more of them were going to leave because of it. And the Labour Party membership is overwhelmingly in favour of a second referendum. It is Labour Party policy since their uh, party conference last September that uh, if other options fail, like uh, Labour or a general election, then they really need to consider uh, backing uh, a second referendum. So what's going to happen is that uh, tomorrow, because uh, there is another of these votes on Brexit or these motions on Brexit tomorrow being debated, Labour will table an amendment uh, outlining its proposal, which involves uh, a permanent customs union and close alignment with the rules of the single market and various other uh, bits and pieces. And that, as you say, uh, is likely to be defeated in the House of Commons. And then what Jeremy Corbyn said is that uh, any deal that she, uh, that Theresa May brings to the House of Commons, if that deal is uh, is passed, that they will propose uh, an amendment uh, insisting that that should go for, uh, to, to a confirmatory 
referendums. That's a bit like you had for the Good Friday Agreement 20 years ago in Ireland, the two parts of Ireland. So the agreement was agreed, all the legislation was prepared. And then uh, you had these two referendums. And follow, you know, once you had the yes votes in the referendums in North and South, then it meant that the thing could go ahead. You didn't have to do any further negotiations. So what this would mean would be that uh, Parliament would approve Theresa May's uh, deal if it did. But then it would have to go to a referendum and the choice would be between Theresa May's deal or union. And uh, so, so that's where he's going. It's not clear that uh, there is a majority in the House of Commons right now for a second referendum. But if, um, you know, if there is an extension, say, of Article 50, or if, uh, if various other options fail, it is possible just in the ever-changing atmosphere at, Mes- at Westminster that you could find uh, a majority for, the, uh, for a second referendum. And certainly the fact that the Labour Party's official policy is now to back it means that it's much more possible that that could happen than it was uh, the day before yesterday. And, and no more than Theresa May and her party, Corbyn has to deal with rival factions and his party on this particular issue. In pleasing one, has he has he alienated the, the pro-Brexit uh, MPs in, in his party? Yes, there's a couple of dozen or so uh, MPs who represent uh, constituencies that voted heavily to leave. I mean, two-thirds of Labour MPs represent constituencies that voted to leave in uh, 2016. But most Labour MPs are very adamantly remain. And and, uh, and many of them would back a second referendum. But there is this uh, group of about 25 or thereabouts MPs who represent these heavily leave uh, leaning seats who don't want to be seen to be blocking Brexit or thwarting the will of the people. And they say that they'll defy the whip and they will oppose any move towards a second referendum. And they're very annoyed with uh, what Corbyn has done. But uh, they're not really elected to go anywhere because there's nowhere particularly for them to go. Okay, and so Dennis, um, finally, what's going to happen? Well, tomorrow we're going to have uh, uh, this motion and uh, various amendments. If the uh, Yvette Cooper Oliver Letterman amendment uh, is put to the vote, I think uh, the, my expectation right now would be that it will probably be defeated. But uh, things can change very quickly here. You know, that uh, it, it often is the case that what seems absolutely certain at four o'clock or thereabouts in the afternoon uh, is is just absolutely impossible at 10 o'clock in the evening and something else has happened by 9 o'clock in the morning. So I think I'd be uh, wary of too many predictions. But what we do know will happen is that uh, Geoffrey Cox, who's the Attorney General, is uh, going is out in Brussels again and uh, he's trying to find some kind of legally binding assurance that the Northern Ireland backstop is not indefinite. And that's something which is quite difficult because uh, he can get various assurances, but how legally binding they're going to be is one question. And then the other question is, uh, you know, will what he's able to produce, will that be enough to persuade enough Brexiteers and the DUP to back the deal this time round? Uh, and uh, and if not, uh, what happens that then? But is, is it fair to, to say, Dennis, I know I said finally a moment ago, but for what we won't make predictions, but that the prospect of a no deal has significantly receded, hasn't it? It, it looks like either Theresa May will get a revised deal um, or given that we know the House of Commons has already uh, passed a vote against the no deal, if you like that, it's either her deal or probably a delay. Is that a fair kind of uh, summary? Yeah, 
I, I think it's fair to say that uh, you're probably now not going to get a no-deal Brexit on the 29th of March. And I think that if the House of Commons rejects uh, leaving without a deal on the 29th of March, it would probably also reject leaving without a deal on the 29th of June. Uh, so I think that uh, you probably, what Theresa May has done today, probably has made a no-deal Brexit on the 29th of March very unlikely, and a no-deal Brexit a few months later less likely uh, than, it, than it was. So in that sense, and the, the markets have responded uh, accordingly. So I think, yes, that's true, that the no-deal Brexit uh, on the 29th of March now very unlikely, and probably a no-deal Brexit a few months later also unlikely. Dennis, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That was Dennis Staunton, our London editor. Now it's to that pre-dawn airstrike conducted by India inside Pakistani territory, which has led to an immediate heightening of tensions between these two nuclear powers. Our correspondent in India, Rul Bedi, joins me now from New Delhi. Rul, tell us about this airstrike by India overnight. Where did it take place and what was the target? Well, the targets, uh, India claims, were uh, militant uh, camps in uh, across the line of control in uh, in Pakistan. Um, they, there's a little confusion over where exactly it took place, uh, but it was about 50 to 60 kilometers from the border in Kashmir, uh, and there were about 10 or 12 fighter jets that uh, participated in the strike. And uh, the strike took place at about uh, between three and quarter past three uh, early this morning. And uh, the uh, government of India claims that uh, they destroyed this particular terrorist camp. And uh, the unofficial figure for the number of casualties is about 300. Um, so, But it cannot be independently confirmed. And the Air Force is not talking about it. So we really have the word of the Ministry of External Affairs uh, to go by. And Pakistan, um, I think, has disputed uh, th- those figures. Yes, Pakistan has not only disputed the figures, Pakistan has disputed the entire thing. The only thing that Pakistan has admitted to is that the Indian Air Force uh, fighters did cross into Pakistani territory, um, but it said that it scrambled the Pakistani Air Force jets, uh, which managed to chase the Indian fighters away. And, uh, in fact, just recent, uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, the Pakistani military uh, public relations department has said that uh, uh, none, nothing of this kind happened. And it has also stopped a group of Pakistani journalists from going to this place where India claims it uh, carried out the attack. So it's all very, very confusing on uh, on both sides, really. And whatever did happen, Rulan, I presume that will become clear in time. Why now? What prompted this action? Well, uh, there was an attack on the 14th of February on a paramilitary convoy. And there was a suicide car bomber who rammed his uh, explosive-ridden loaded car into a bus in which uh, about 40-odd paramilitary soldiers died. Indian soldiers, yes. And this generated a huge... uh, Indian soldiers, yes, in uh, in fact, in Kashmir. And uh, this uh, resulted in a blowback uh, across the country uh, demanding revenge. And uh, Prime Minister Modi went uh, on several public rallies in which he said that uh, India would give uh, what he called a jaw-breaking response to Pakistan. But now they've organized this, uh, they claim to have organized this attack by the Indian Air Force. And uh, they feel that this is likely to deter Pakistan uh, even more. But a lot of the senior Pakistani leaders, including Prime Minister Imran Khan and the Foreign Minister, have said that uh, this is an act of war. 
and uh, Pakistan will react accordingly. And and tell us, Ruth, something more about the, this terrorist group that India blames for this attack on its soldiers and, and what connection does it make between that group and the Pakistani state? Well, uh, India blames has blamed Pakistan ever since uh, the insurgency in Kashmir erupted in 1989. Kashmir is divided between India and Pakistan and both lay claim to it in its entirety. And uh, an insurgency movement uh, started in, uh, in Kashmir in 1989, and uh, it's been going on ever since then for almost 30 years. Uh, and pa- India blames Pakistan for fueling the terrorism. Uh, but this particular group, which is called the Jeshe Muhammad or the Army of Muhammad, uh, has been uh, around since 1999-2000. Uh, so it's been around for almost 20 years. And uh, India blames uh, this group for uh, organizing an attack on the Indian parliament in 2001, uh, which resulted in both India and Pakistan deploying their armies along their border for a period of almost 10 months. Uh, It's also been held responsible for the attacks uh, in 2016 and 2015 on an Indian army camp and an Indian Air Force base in uh, northern India. Um, And uh, India says that these uh, groups are cosseted and uh, and sponsored by the Pakistan Army's uh, intelligence, which is the Inter-Services Intelligence Directorate. Uh, and this, uh, the aim of the uh, ISI uh, and the Pakistan Army is to bleed India by a thousand cuts because uh, Kashmir is the basic problem between the two sides, which goes back to independence. Uh, so they, uh, India continues to blame Pakistan. Pakistan continues to deny any involvement and say that these uh, terrorist groups are autonomous uh, in their functioning and they have really no control over them. Rahul, this is the first cross-border attack by India since the most recent war between the two sides in, in 1971. So I think that tells us how serious a development this is. You, you were starting to tell us a moment ago about the response from Pakistan, a pretty angry response, I presume. Well, uh, uh, Pakistan has uh, denied that uh, the Indian uh, Indian claims that uh, they were successful in attacking a terrorist camp because they claim that no terrorist camps exist in Kashmir. Uh, India has been blaming Pakistan since 1989 for uh, training and arming uh, terrorists that they send across into Kashmir to fuel the insurgency, uh, which has been raging for almost 30 years. Uh, And the air attack becomes very significant because um, it, it, it is in violation of Pakistani territory. But again, there's a peculiarity here because India claims... Uh, that Kashmir belongs to India, and therefore the attack that it carried out was really, in a sense, on its own territory, which is very bizarre. Uh, So it also claims that because the attack was carried out on a terrorist camp and not against any civilians or any military targets, therefore it is legitimate. Uh, so it's 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 a very very complicated situation, and uh, it's become all the more alarming and complicated because both sides are uh, nuclear weapon states, and uh, they went to war. Uh, in fact, in uh, in 1999, soon after both sides became nuclear weapon states, and the conflict in which about 1,200 soldiers died on either side came close uh, to a nuclear exchange, but was defused at that time by President uh, Clinton. Uh, so both sides have uh, been very close uh, to the brinkmanship of a nuclear war. And uh, I think most military strategists know that uh, once uh, any country uses air power, 
that automatically climbs the escalatory ladder uh, of uh, something going out of hand fairly soon. Andrew, this, this dispute, of course, over Kashmir, the, st- the status of Kashmir, it's as old as Indian and Pakistani independence itself. Is there any indication of any um, kind of long-term resolution being found to the, the, this dispute? None at all, none at all. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a very gruesome joke about uh, somebody going to God and saying that when will the uh, Kashmir problem be resolved and uh, God turns around and says, not in my lifetime. Um, things have been rumbling on for uh, since 1947, about 72 years, and uh, they've got uh, a lot worse under Mr. Under Prime Minister Modi. Uh, Kashmir is currently under federal rule, uh, so there doesn't seem to be any chance of a breakthrough because India refuses to talk to Pakistan over Kashmir, and uh, it also refuses to talk to any of the uh, Kashmiri political parties. Uh, so it's a complete stalemate uh, with the Kashmiris in uh, in Kashmir as well as with Pakistan over Kashmir. So it's really a, a complete uh, complete impasse uh, that prevails. And you mentioned Prime Minister Modi there, and of course uh, this attack or this raid takes place against the, the backdrop of a of a, a general election coming in India before the end of May. Presumably, this action won't do his standing any harm among certain elements anyway of, of his electorate. On the contrary, it would boost his chances because uh, till uh, yesterday, till the attack happened, uh, Mr. Modi was uh, a little feeble and he was a little wobbly uh, politically. Um, But the attack uh, that uh, has been announced today has uh, significantly boosted his chances. And uh, all talk of him coming back in either with a lesser majority seem, uh, at least for the moment, to have evaporated. But again, there's about two or three months left for the election. But uh, this attack is likely to uh, significantly augment Mr. Modi's uh, political fortunes. And across the border, Pakistan has a relatively new prime minister in Imran Khan. And like Modi, he's not averse to whipping up some nationalist fervour himself, is he? Not at all. And in fact, uh, Imran Khan is supported very much by the Pakistan army. And uh, Pakistan uh, is uh, the Pakistan, the army has been in control for the last uh, for, in fact, most of its existence over the last 70-odd years. Uh, And uh, the military does not take uh, to India uh, very kindly. And this kind of uh, attack is uh, anticipated that they're likely to be a riposte by the Pakistan army. Now, when it comes, where it comes, in fact, Imran Khan just recently, a few minutes ago, said that uh, they will uh, choose the time and place uh, when they conduct uh, uh, an attack or a retaliation. Uh, so that uh, really remains to be seen when that happens, if that happens. And Ruled, as you've alluded to there already, tensions between India and Pakistan over Kashmir, they're nothing new. They occasionally spill over into a, a real diplomatic crisis. How serious do you think this one is in comparison to what's gone before? That's a very difficult question to answer because uh, things can deteriorate very quickly or they can be diffused very quickly. But uh, I think the jingoism on uh, on the Indian side by Mr. Modi is uh, not really doing the situation uh, much good. Um, the Pakistanis are on, uh, on the defensive, uh, which is not a good sign. Uh, there is also chaos as far as the Afghan-Pakistan problem is concerned. The Americans are pulling out of, uh, of uh, Kabul. Uh, Pakistan is uh, is wanting a greater share of uh, its control over Kabul. 
so the, the whole situation in this region is very, very volatile. So it's very difficult to give any kind of an assessment. But uh, it's the situation is not good. It's uh, very uh, extremely volatile, to put it mildly. Uh, so it could escalate. Uh, but the next few days, I think, uh, are going to be very, very crucial. Rul, thank you. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.